Well, praise the Lord, everybody. You glad to feel the presence of the Lord? This is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. I am just so thankful that we're back in person service. I'm glad that we had, uh, we've had the ability to have online service. But for me personally, I need to be with people of God. And last week I was rejoicing, and then this morning as we're worshiping together, just so very thankful to be back in the house of the Lord with you. Praise God. So glad that I had the opportunity to speak this morning. I definitely feel like God has laid a message on my heart for you and for me. And I'm just convinced that if we'll seek the Lord, that he's going to touch us this morning. I, at, while we were singing, I just felt like the Lord was laying on my heart. You'll get what you seek. You'll get what you seek this morning. If you want more of God, and if you seek him, you will get him this morning. You will get what you seek. Praise God. Now, I know, and, and you're very aware of this, that, that during this time of COVID, it's been very difficult, right? In, in, in various ways. But one area in particular that it's been difficult and the one I'm most concerned about is that it's been very difficult spiritually for many people. Uh, during this time, a lot of people have found themselves uh, being far away from the Lord. They just know that their relationship with Him is just not what it once was. Perhaps this morning you're feeling distant from the Lord. Or perhaps it may even be that you feel like that, that your relationship with Him is just not there at all. And you feel like maybe it's on life support. And you know it. God knows it and you're not happy about it, and you want to do something about it. And my message this morning is that God is here, and God is reaching out to you today, and God is seeking you, and he's not approaching you in a spirit of judgment or anger or wrath, but he loves you, and he's calling out to you today. And if you'll seek him, you will find him, and you will be renewed and restored in him this morning. Amen? Do you receive that? I receive it for myself. I'm going to get what I seek this morning. I want to read just a couple of uh, scriptures too, a couple of passages to get us started this morning in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. I'll be reading from the New King James, and then I'm also going to read from 1 John 4, 16. I don't know how you feel about it. I have an expectation in my spirit this morning. Something will happen among us today. Praise God. Genesis 3, 8 through 9, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Where are you? And then in 1 John four sixteen, reading from the NIV, I love this verse of scripture. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is is love. God is love. His very nature is love. And I just love to know that the God I serve is not a God of wrath or anger, but he is a God of love. Amen. The title of my message this morning is, Where Are You? Where Are You? And my subtitle, and I kind of chuckled. I was like, I don't think I've ever had a subtitle for my sermon, but I have one today. The subtitle is God Loves You and is Seeking You This Morning. Amen. Can we just pray right now and ask God to apply this to us and, and open our hearts to receive it? Father, I know you're wanting to do a work in our hearts, but you're not going to force that work. And I pray, God, that you would help us right now to open our hearts to you and receive all that you have for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite stories in the history of theology 
And I know you're all interested in the history of theology, right? What could be more exciting than the history of theology? Well, it's exciting to me. And uh, one of my favorite stories in the history of theology has to do with a theologian named Karl Barth. Uh, Barth is, uh, was a Swiss theologian and is widely regarded as the greatest uh, or one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote millions of words about all aspects of the Christian life. And I don't know if you've read a lot of Bart, but if we tried to read all of Bart's works, it would take us for years uh, to read them all. There are scholars that give their entire life of scholarship just to studying this one man's theology. He was tremendously uh, influential. Well, I was reading in the magazine Christianity Today many years ago that there was one time Bart came to the United States. It was in 1962. And uh, while he was there, a, a person asked him if he could just summarize, you know, all these millions of words that you've written about the faith, could you just summarize those? Or, or maybe what's the most profound theological thought you've ever had? Well, that person asking that question, you know, they're asking it of the great scholar, Karl Barth, this prolific writer, this great thinker, this profound theologian. They're expecting you know, a scholarly or a sophisticated answer, you know. So, so Bart, what's the most powerful theological thought that's ever gone through your mind? And so he thought about it for just a moment, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> and I can't tell you how I love that story, that when the great theologian, now I feel like I might have enjoyed that a little bit more than y'all. I don't know. But I'm thinking, the great theologian Karl Barth is asked the question, what's the most profound theological thought you had? And, and the first thing that went through his mind was the first line of the most famous children's uh, Sunday school song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, that may, may not be the most sophisticated or scholarly thought, but it's certainly the most profound thought. The greatest thought that I can think of is that God is love, and he loves me, and he loves you. I think we ought to thank the Lord for that today. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace to us. Well, I'm no, I'm no Carl Barton. I don't, I don't know how many words I've preached in the past. I don't know how many words I will preach in the future or write. But if in the future somebody was to ask me, how would you summarize your message? What's the message that you preached? It's got to be that God's love. It's just got to be that God is love. Make sure the people know God is love and he loves you. He loves you so very much. That's the first thing that we've got to know. All the good things that we have received in life flow from the love of God. The very life that's in our body this morning is a gift from God's love. Of course, the salvation that we've received, new birth that we've received, that's from God's love. The power that we receive to overcome sin, the comfort that we receive in suffering, the strength that we receive to overcome trials, all of that comes from the love of God. Even his warnings against sin, even his calls to repent, even him telling us and warning us that if we don't know him, if we don't follow Christ, we'll spend eternity separated from him in hell. Even those warnings come from his love. They flow from a heart that says, I want to spend eternity with you forever. I love everybody in the world, and I want to know everybody. I want to live with them for eternity. Thank God for the love of God. Amen. God is love. That's the foundational truth. It's the first thing you've got to know and you've got to understand is that God 
loves you. And he doesn't love you because you're particularly lovable. I know you're, you're good people, uh, but we all have faults, right? We have many faults. So he doesn't love us just because we're so good and we're faultless, but quite the contrary. He loves us in spite of our faults, in spite of our failures, in spite of turning our back on him. He still loves us, and what a thought that is. Thank God for that. And he loves us because his very nature is love. Everything that we might ever preach from this pulpit first has to be built on the foundation of that wonderful truth that God is love. From the first page of the Bible till the last page, the great theme, the great message of Scripture is God loves you, and he loves you so much that he's seeking you, and he's not satisfied with you not being in relationship with you, but he will seek over and over and over again until he gets you in relationship with him. And we see that wonderful truth right at the very beginning of creation with the creation of the first human beings, Adam and Eve. You know, nothing compelled God to create. Nothing forced him to create. He didn't feel a lack or a need in himself, and therefore I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create something that might uh, meet that need. No, God is perfect. He's complete in himself. And you might ask, well, why did he create? Why did he create Adam and, Adam and Eve? Just because he wanted to? Just because he wanted to love? He wanted to have a special creature that was created in his image that he could draw into the closest possible relationship and pour out his love on them, pour out his life on them, and pour out his good on them. Praise God. And so he creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the Garden of Eden. He puts them in paradise. He supplied everything that they needed. Anything that they could possibly want, he gave that to them. He didn't withhold anything of benefit. He didn't withhold any good thing from them. Everything he gave to them. Everything was so perfect. Everything was so sinless that the Bible says they were naked and they felt no shame. There was no consciousness of sin. There was no consciousness of doing wrong or anything appropriate. They were more morally innocent, innocent like children. But what made Eden a paradise was not that they had this moral innocence. It was not the beauty, the natural beauty. It was not the peace that was there. It was not the fact that there was no death, no pain or sorrow. What made Eden a paradise is God's presence was there. God's very presence was with them every day. Every day, the Bible says in the cool of the day, when those uh, cool breezes begin to blow, God came to that garden seeking out Adam and Eve for fellowship. He delighted in them. He loved them. He sought them out just for fellowship because he loved them so very much. He daily sought them out. And throughout Scripture, we see this pattern of God seeking human beings of offering his love, of offering relationship to them. But just as surely as we see God seeking out human beings and offering relationship to them, we see them rejecting that relationship and turning from God for things that they regard as better. And we see this in the, in the story of Adam and Eve. Again, God loved them. He had given so very much, and he gave everything to satisfy their needs and desires. And, and, but there was just one command that he gave. There was just one prohibition. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, the word says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die." 
So in addition to all these fruit trees that that God had given for food, he had planted two special trees right in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life, if you partook of that fruit, it would give and sustain eternal life. And then the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible doesn't really give a lot of information about what that means or what that might entail. Most people understand that by partaking of the fruit, moral innocence would be gone. People wouldn't understand good and evil, right and wrong. The Bible doesn't say why God forbid that tree. But the main thing I want to point out about that forbidden tree this morning is that it was a place of testing. It was going to be a place to test whether or not Adam and Eve would put God first and love him. It would be a test to see would they receive his love and in response love him and obey him. God put those trees right in the middle of the garden, right in the center of their lives so that they would see them every day. Every day when they saw the tree of life, they would be reminded that God was saying, I love you and I want to spend eternity with you. Every day that they saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would be reminded God saying, I love you, but I'm your father and your Lord and you're to obey me. See, this issue This issue of God's love and his lordship was something that would confront them every day. They had to think about it. They had to act on it every day. He didn't put the trees off in a far corner somewhere where they might not see them or it might just be rare. No, every day they would see them. He didn't put a tree around or he didn't put a, a fence around the forbidden tree. He didn't dig a moat around it to make it inaccessible. It was quite accessible to them. What am I trying to say? This, God was not going to force them to live for him. He was not going to force them to choose to embrace his love and live for them. He was giving them a choice. You know, I don't, I, I'm sure y'all have probably thought this. I certainly have. I've thought, God, couldn't you just make me live for you? Couldn't you just make me do the right thing? I mean, I really want to, but I find myself not doing it. So could you just make me do it? I don't want a choice in this thing. Could you just make me do it? Have you ever thought that? God, can you just make me live for you and do what is right? God's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. He wants relationship with you. And in order for there to be relationship, there has to be a choice. For true relationship, both parties have to realize, I have a choice in this thing. What joy would there be in my marriage if I realized one day, my goodness, I didn't realize that my wife was forced to marry me. I didn't know. You know, I mean, could I find joy in that relationship? Absolutely not. You've got to have a choice and a commitment to be in that relationship. So that tree was there, and every day, every day, they had to make a choice uh, to remain in relationship with God and love him and obey him or to turn to something else. So Adam and Eve, they enjoyed this this perfect relationship. He loved them. They loved him. Uh, But in Genesis 3-1, an ominous note is sounded. The Word of God says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So Satan showed up in the form of this serpent, and he began to tempt Eve to disobey. And isn't that just like the devil? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You make a commitment. You have a great Sunday of worship. Recommit your life to the Lord. Man, you're going to live for him. What a great day we had. And then Monday comes, early Monday sometimes, and the devil will show up to test that commitment, that commitment that you made when you were being so stirred in worship and stirred by a message. The devil is always going to put that to the test. 
Well, it took a bit of effort, uh, but he ultimately did get her to disobey. And you can read about it in Genesis 3 and all the things that were said and all that was done. But just to summarize it, what he did is he twisted God's word. And he made Eve begin to doubt God's goodness. He made Eve believe that, um, that God had held out on them. He made Eve doubt God's motives. He even blatantly contradicted what God would said would happen if they disobeyed. He said, you're not going to die. Here's what he said. He's bas- basically, he was like, Eve, let me put it this way. God knows that in the day you eat, you're going to be just like him, knowing good and evil. And so, in other words, he's just trying to keep you down. He doesn't want your best. He doesn't truly love you. Well, doubt entered Eve's mind. Pride entered her heart at the thought of being like God, and she took of the fruit, and she ate. So, she rejected God's love and his lordship for something that she thought was better. And as is often the case when people sin, uh, they drag somebody else into it with them. And so the Bible says that she also gave to her husband and he ate. And I'll just note in passing that Adam's resistance was not very stout at all. He put up no resistance, in fact. It was like he didn't have to be tempted. He didn't have to be deceived. Eve just turned around and said, hey, do you want some of the fruit? And he was like, oh, okay, and just took it. And I'm wondering, is that why the devil went to Eve? At least it was a challenge. Adam put up no fight, no challenge, so why attack him? I'll attack somebody else. Adam just ate. He just partook. And so when they ate of that fruit, what the serpent said, at least in one respect, came true. They suddenly knew good and evil. But instead of it being liberating, instead of it being enlightening like the devil will make, Uh, all sins seem. It darkened their heart, and they immediately knew that something was wrong. Chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So their moral innocence was gone. They knew that they were naked, and for the first time, for the first time, they felt that shame that you and I feel when we disobey and fail God. But more significantly, perhaps, or at least the first thing, first time they ever had experienced was separation from God. Up to this point, they had had perfect communion with him. But suddenly, suddenly they felt that something had died in them. Their immortality was gone. Their relationship with God was broken. God said that in the day they ate, they would die. Not that they would just fall over physically dead, but they experienced spiritual death in that moment, no longer would they, they have this easy relationship with God that was unhindered by sin. From now on, there would be something in their own fallen nature that would tend to push them away from God. What they didn't immediately know, but they would come to understand soon, was that now because of their sin, they were going to have to be saved from their sin through a blood sacrifice. Sin separates people from God. God is sinless. He's holy. And he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot be in intimate relationship with somebody who's living in sin. It's not that he just doesn't want to. He cannot because of his nature, his holiness. But he had a plan. Praise God. He had a plan that through sacrifice, sin could be covered. Thank God. And we could be in relationship with him. Thank God for a sacrifice that can cover our sin. 
Well, Adam and Eve didn't understand that at that moment. All they felt was this guilt and the shame of doing wrong. And so in this futile attempt to cover their feelings of guilt, they made coverings for themselves out of fig leaves. But then, and I don't know if it was right when they finished putting those on, but then they heard a sound, a familiar sound in another, in the other, in another part of the garden. They ha- heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now, the sound that that once caused them to rejoice now made them fear. The sound that once caused them to come out and seek God now made them hide, which actually, I I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, God said, Adam, if you eat, you're going to die. So they had eaten. So what did that leave? Okay, so he's probably not going to be eager for God coming to the garden. So they hide. So God came calling, but instead of hearing uh, the happy voices of his children like he had heard before, he heard nothing but silence or maybe just the rustling of the leaves of the trees. And Genesis 3, 9 says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? It's not that God didn't know. He wasn't trying to uncover some information. He wasn't in doubt. He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they had done. He saw when they took the fruit. He saw when they ate. He knew what had happened. He knew where they were, and he was coming to confront them. But not in anger, not in in, in just wrath to judge them. He was coming in love to restore them. Amen. And so he asked, where are you? Because what he was wanting to do in that question is, is make them really think about where they were. He was trying to get them to feel what had been lost in their life. He was trying to get them to remember what they had known in him in the happy times in his presence. And in thinking of that, that perhaps they would then come out of hiding and confess their sins so he could make it right with them. Adam did not at first confess. In fact, he blamed everybody but himself, even kind of blamed God. He was like, you know, this woman that you gave me, (laughs) she's the one. You know, everything was great here in the garden, and then you had this plan to bring me this woman, and she's the problem. Well, after all, making all these excuses, he finally does confess, yes, I ate. And then Eve kind of did the same thing, blamed the serpent, uh, but in the end, she confessed too. You know, Adam and Eve's response uh, is so typical to how many people respond, or most of us respond to our sin and failing God. Rather than feel that conviction and drawing from the Lord, because that's how the Lord draws us to himself, is by the conviction and us feeling guilt. That's a means to get us to come back to him. Instead of just, just confessing and making it right, we all too often make excuses, blame other people. Or we might act like it's really not that big of a deal. Or we may do things to try to suppress our guilt. Or maybe we just try to avoid God's presence altogether. Maybe we won't come to church. Or if we come to church, we'll avoid God's presence. And you can do that in church. (laughs) You can do that. You can just not pray. You can just not sing. When you start to feel the presence of the Lord, you can shut that down because God's not going to force it on you. You can keep God at arm's at arm's length. Oh, praise God for his wonderful presence and his grace. I don't know how this is affecting you, but just thinking about the love of God and his mercy and grace has touched me. 
so very much. And, and I was thinking, now, you know, I don't know why we respond that way. I, I don't know why we don't just confess. I don't know why we don't just make things right. I'm not really sure why. But I think one of the reasons why is that we just don't understand God's love. We just don't understand his attitude toward those who, who know that they're wrong and want to make it right with God. We just don't know. But what I want to assure you today is that when you turn back to God, he rejoices. He celebrates that you've turned back to him because he loves you so very much. Now, if you're just reading the story of Adam and Eve, it might not seem obvious that, that he was rejoicing when they confessed. Uh, but, but to make sure that we understand God's love and his attitude toward people who are turning back to us, Jesus told three parables in Luke 15 that give us a glimpse into the heart and love of God. Uh, Jesus said this in this first parable. He said, you know, it's, it's like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, but one of them went astray and was lost. Ninety-nine were safe and sound. And for most people, they might say, well, losing one sheep's not that big of a deal. I mean, after all, you have ninety-nine. But that good shepherd didn't think that way. And he begins seeking after that sheep. And he, he sought and sought, and finally he found it. And he didn't yell at it. He didn't beat it. He rejoiced over the fact that he had found this sheep. And it's a very beautiful image. Uh, Jesus says that the shepherd reached down and picked that sheep up and put it over his shoulders and carried it back to where it was supposed to be. That's beautiful. <laughs> and when he got back, the shepherd got back. He called his friends and neighbors. He said, I want, I'm going to have a party. I'm going to celebrate. What was precious to me was lost, but it's found. The second parable he told, he said, it's like a woman who had 10 silver coins, but she lost one. Well, a lot of people would say, well, you have nine. Losing one's not that big of a deal, but not to that woman. It was a big deal. She lit a lamp. She swept her house, and she sought diligently and kept seeking until she found that little coin, and she too celebrated. She too called together uh, her friends and relatives. We're going to have a party because I found what was lost. And then in the final story that Jesus tells, and this is probably one of the most famous parables that he ever told, he said, it's like, it's like or he goes, there's a rich father who had two sons. The older son, uh, he was loyal, always did what was right, never left the father's house, but the younger son was not that way. The younger son went up to the father and said, I want you to give me my inheritance right now, my portion of my inheritance, and the father gives it to him. Well, he gets that inheritance, that money. He spurns the father. He leaves the father's house. He goes into a far country, parties it up, and burns through his inheritance. He ends up taking care of pigs, which would have been detestable for a Jewish young man because pigs were unclean. He was near starving. He was so desperate that he was looking at the pig's food and thought, I'm just going to eat that. I'm, in, I'm so desperate. But in those dire straits, Jesus said, he came to himself. He came to himself. And he realized, he's like, wait a second. The servants in my father's house eat better than this. They live better than this. And so he came up with a plan. He said, I'm just going to go back to my father's house, and I'm going to beg him to let me just be a servant. And so he starts that long, humiliating journey back home. And the whole time he was gone, the father had never stopped watching for him. 
And one day, as the father was watching, his heart just leapt within him because he saw his son in the distance. And he did something that uh, a, a rich man, an older man in his culture would never do. He began to run. He began to run to his son. His heart was just overflowing with love and compassion for him, for his son. And when his son saw his father running, he was expecting that I'm going to get rebuked. I'm going to get condemned because I've shamed myself. I've dishonored the family. And so when his father was right there, he started to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a servant. But the father was like, none of that, none of that. And he just fell upon him and began hugging him and kissing him. And he called out to his servants. He said, get the fatted calf. Get a robe. Get a ring. Get sandals and put them on his feet. My son, who was so precious to me, who was lost, has now been found. We're going to celebrate. We're going to rejoice that what was so precious has been found. Praise God. I don't know how that story touches you, but it just moves me so much to know that that's how God thinks of me. Even if I were to leave his house and come back, he loves me. He runs to me. Praise God. So in those stories, those three stories, God's the shepherd, God's the woman, God is the father. God's the one who seeks. He's the one who seeks until he finds, and when he finds, he carries us. He's the one who runs and embraces and rejoices over us when we are found. When those who turn back to him are found, he rejoices, he rejoices, praise God. And that's how he feels about you. Can you believe that? Do you believe that? That's how he feels about you when you turn back to him. God loves you. I'm just going to look at every one of you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And he's never given up. He's never given up on you, never will, just like he had not given up on Adam and Eve. Now, I wish I could say that there are no consequences to our sin. I wish I could say, you know, when we turn back to him, uh, everything's just made well. You know, there's no consequences. Uh, But God does not always shield us from the consequences of our sinful actions. Uh, When he came in love to the garden to restore Adam and Eve, uh, he didn't say, oh, well, now that you've confessed and we've made it right, what I said about the death part, nah, it's, we'll forget about that. It's, we'll just go back to how it was. He doesn't say that. They experienced what he said would happen if they disobeyed. They were removed from paradise. Because after all, how could there be a paradise now that there was sin? He told Eve, he said, you're going to have pain in childbearing. He told Adam, uh, you're going to struggle to bring food forth uh, from the earth that has been cursed. So there were definitely consequences to their sin. But here's the key. Here's the key. Though they lost the garden, though they were going to live in a fallen world, they had not lost God. God had not separated himself from them. When they left that garden, they did it in his presence 
presence covered by coverings that he had provided for him for them. The fig leaves that they had provided for themselves, which were inadequate, God uh, removed and gave them coverings from skins of animals. Blood was shed that they might be covered. In the taking of the life of these animals to, go, to cover them, God revealed that there was a sacrifice of sin that now would be required for sins to be forgiven. And we see that in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But in this first sacrifice, it po- pointed ultimately to the greatest sacrifice, the greatest expression of God's love towards sinful humanity. Christ sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Praise God. We see the love of God in in that parable of the shepherd and the woman and the wealthy father, but we see God's love most clearly in the cross of Christ. 1 John 4, 9 through 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God. It wasn't that we sought him, loved him first. No, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the opening passage that I read, 1 John 4, 6, 4.16, he says, We know and rely on the love of God. We don't rely on ourselves. We rely on the sacrifice that he gave in love. There's nothing that we can do that make ourselves right in God's presence. The Bible says that we all have fallen short of the glory of God because we've all sinned. And outside of Christ, outside of Christ, we're spiritually dead and we need a sacrifice to cover our sins that we might be saved. Even after we come to know the Lord, do we sin sometimes? Certainly we do. Do we grow cold sometimes in the Lord? Certainly we do. And so how desperate are we still for the forgiveness of God? Whether we're first coming to the Lord or walking with him, we've got to have his forgiveness. And there is no good work that we can do to cover our sin. There's nothing that we could do that can make us alive spiritually. All of our efforts are insufficient. Our fig leaves, so to speak, are not enough. But the good news of the Bible is that Christ's sacrifice for sins is enough. It is sufficient to cover every sin, no matter what sin it might be. Christ's shed blood is the answer for your sin. It is the gift of God because he loves you so very much. Amen, amen. Why don't we stand at this time? Oh, God, we're so very grateful. We're so thankful, Lord, for your love. We're so thankful that you loved us so much that you gave your son to die in our place, to shed his blood that our sins might be covered. Oh, God, open our eyes to see how beautiful that is. Help us to receive that. Help us to have faith in the Lord Jesus. Oh, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. When I had begun planning for this sermon, I, I thought that it was going to be about just preaching about the love of God and the various ways that we experience His love, but then very different from Him, or a little distant from Him, or perhaps are hiding from Him. So today, so today, the Lord's here and in love, in grace, but He's asking, Where are you? 
Where are you? Some of you can happily say, I'm right here, Lord. I'm right where you want me to be. And that's great. Praise God for that. Others of us, though, you would have to say, well, I'm hiding. I've been hiding. I've been, I've grown cold in my relationship with you. But I feel your love drawing me, Lord, and I want to make it right. You need to do that today. I feel the presence of the Lord right now. I love God because I've received so much of his love in my life, and I just feel that right now. I feel it for you, that he's reaching out for you right now. So where are you today? God wants to embrace you in love. Amen. Thank you, God, for your love. I pray, God, that you would pour out your grace on us right now and help us to believe it. I know that there are some people here that just can't believe that you really love them because they failed so often. God, help them to understand. Just give them a vision for it, what your love is really like. Sweep over this congregation right now in Jesus' name. Just receive that right now. Let the love of God, don't, don't shut that off. Don't shut that off. The Lord's here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In just a moment, we're going we're gonna to have a time of worship. We're going to have a time of seeking him. And this is what I would urge you to do. Whether you stay in your seat or you come forward, that if you're far from God right now, or if it's just, you just know you're not as close to him as you need to be, then repent. This is the time to turn back to him. Realize in your mind, picture the Father running to you. Confess your sins. Scripture says that if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just, he will forgive you of all your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is the promise that you have today. So if you approach him, confessing, he's going to forgive you. You also can be renewed in the spirit this morning. Maybe it's, oh, man. Maybe it's been a long time since you've really prayed, prayed through, as we like to say. Since you've had a a time where you were worshiping so much, you began to speak in other tongues as a spirit gave you utterance. You can be renewed in that. You can be refilled with the spirit this morning. And it's not hard. It's not hard. What you'll do, you come down here, be at your seat, whatever. After you've confessed your sins, after you've sought him and you know that you've been forgiven, when you feel that release and by faith you just take hold of his promise, you just lift your hands. You just begin to worship. It doesn't even have to be loud as long as you're fervent in your heart, really seeking him. You just begin to worship. Say, God, I need to be renewed in the spirit today. I've got to be renewed and restored right now. I've got to have your transforming power in my life right now. And as you continue to worship, God's going to begin speaking through you in tongues, sign that he's renewing you in the spirit in Jesus' name. Praise God. I'm just so glad to be able to look out on this congregation knowing that there are going to be people renewed and restored this morning. Amen. Let's seek the Lord right now. Why don't we begin to seek him at this time? Let God's love have his way in your heart. Let's confess our sins. Let's let's seek him right now. Oh, Father. Oh, God, we feel your grace. We feel your love. Feel your compassion toward us. We come to you right now. We don't hold back. 
Have your perfect way right now. As we seek you, let's all find a place to pray in Jesus' name.